1: Today is June 1st, 2007, and I'm Dr. Richard Savell. In today's podcast, we have an opportunity to speak with Dr. H. Bryant Nguyen. He is an associate professor of emergency medicine at Loma Linda University in California. We are going to get an opportunity to speak with him about an article that he recently published. He was the lead author in uh, Critical Care Medicine. This was published in April 2007, volume 35, number 4, pages uh, 1105. The title was Implementation of a Bundle of Quality Indicators for the Early Management of Severe Sepsis Syndrome and Septic Shock is Associated with Decreased Mortality. And uh, the the big picture issues that I, I like to do for the listeners are you were able to to answer two fundamental questions about the emergency department. It was one, could you implement a sepsis bundle? And secondly, by doing so, were you able to improve outcomes? So with that as background, maybe if you could take the first few minutes of the podcast and talk a little bit about how you came up with the idea for this study and maybe explain a little bit of the details to the listeners.
2: First of all, I think uh, the question of can we implement a uh, sepsis bundle in the emergency department, uh, I would like to, um, you know, uh, share that um, there's definitely a mixed feelings about the ability to do so. So what uh, we did, uh, you know, uh, specifically with me uh, and unique was that I uh, began my faculty appointment at Loma Linda University in 2003. In that period of time, uh, there was definitely a new uh, resurgence of uh, sepsis uh, treatment, starting with what uh, with the efforts of the VHA, uh, J-GO, and the Surviving Sepsis Campaign at that time, and the concept of a bundle kind of began, you know, during the same period. So, knowing some of that efforts, and with my background as being, you know, um, part of the original early goal directed therapy. Study at Henry Ford with Dr. Emmanuel Rivers. Uh, I had to determine somehow of implementing that research into standard care. So the idea of the bundle was very, very nice. Uh, however, um, I also knew that being in a new environment, you know, starting from scratch, really, and this is true with any you know process change, is in in order to have the culture change of um, you know a big group, we really have to get local acceptance. So we started out looking at the evidence. Uh, the bundle and the different therapies that's appropriate for the ED setting, you know, the first 6 to 10 hours in the ED. Uh, so we reviewed the literature. We came up with a couple of action items, you know, following the bundle concept.
1: And if I could, let me actually just read your Table 1 for the listeners' uh so they can understand this, Uh, and, and you can tell me if I get this wrong. So basically in table one, you talk about the severe sepsis bundle and inherent quality indicators, and you have, I guess here, there's the first three, which is one, initiate CVP or SCVO2 monitoring within two hours of meeting bundle criteria, Two, give broad-spectrum antibiotics within four hours of meeting bundle criteria. Three, complete the early goal-directed therapy, meaning a CVP greater than or equal to 8, uh, systolic blood pressure greater than greater than 90, or mean arterial pressure greater than or equal to 65 millimeters of mercury, and an SCVO2 greater than 70% at six hours of meeting bundle criteria. And then you said uh, to get the whole uh, bundle, you had to get one, two, and three, and then either four, five, or both. And four right. was... right. So
2: um, in order to develop that bundle, the five components, we had to get local acceptance. So what we did was, uh, you know, myself and a few others, kind of core group, we designed the content. Then we survey our department for basically to see if they they can do it. Uh, And, you know, as Nan mentioned in the method section, we kind of asked uh, the entire department, including attendings and uh, resident physicians, if they think the bundle content was valid which means, you know, there's some evidence base to support it. And, of course, most importantly, I think, are they, is it feasible? Feasible means will it be even doable in our own setting, regardless of what other hospital or other departments can do? Can we ourselves do it? So with that, we had a majority consensus that, yes, it's valid in some form or another, and it's, um, it's it's feasible.
1: And let me just so, read, actually. Let me actually just read. So four was give steroid if patient is on vasopressor or adrenal insufficiency is suspected, and five was monitor for lactate clearance. Correct. Sorry, so I just so wanted to complete the items. bundle there.
2: And so we agreed that the first three items, one, two, and three, were absolute. We have to put a central line in in order to even start any resuscitation because the target was CVP and SVO2. Then second was uh, antibiotic. Uh, by four hours, now we didn't have any... Evidence of hours, you know, time point at that time in septic shock. So we based that on the community acquired pneumonia literature. So that's how we derive at four hours, even though now we know, you know, uh, the earlier the better, and that's intuitive. But we had to have some evidence to back that up. Then, of course, three is the entire early goal directed therapy uh, goals. The steroids uh, was guideline based, so uh, we, you know, with the evidence. Uh, being uh, level C at that you know, uh, for steroids, so we made that kind of an or with lactate clearance. Now it doesn't mean that you you know uh, you need to give uh, steroids when you can't clear your lactate. It just it's a physiologic endpoint, and we know that sometimes patients just cannot clear the lactate, uh, no matter how hard we try. So we made four and five like an either or uh, you know, setting. So the idea is, if you can't clear your lactate, uh, you may want to do more, you know, and, okay, add steroids would be the, the more uh, beyond from the resuscitation. So that was kind of our rationale. Let,
1: let me just ask you a question at this point. So the, the purpose of this study, it wasn't that you were taking patients. I know it was prospective. Um, you weren't taking patients who were meeting criteria for severe sepsis syndrome and randomizing them to the bundle or not. From what I gathered from reading the paper, you would sort of, get a report at the end of each month to see what percentage of patients looking through the chart who met criteria were given the bundle, and then you started performing some uh, system-wide educational procedures to enhance compliance. Maybe if you want to talk about that.
2: Yeah, so what we did was, uh, um, because we wanted to do this as a standard care. So by the fact that it was standard care, we did not approach the IRB to ask for randomization and do a randomized study. So that was not the idea. This was a broad you know, um, uh, implementation to be implemented by any ED physician uh, at 24 hours a day, expected. So in parallel to this implementation uh, was the education effort. Uh, So we only did a prospective, you know, observational study. That means that we uh, educate the physician, the nurses, the resident on the protocol, or therapy, or the antibiotics, or by the sepsis campaign, battling all that was an an education effort. Then, uh, in 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 the background, is the performance measurement. So we didn't really kind of stand at the bedside or have any pager, sepsis pager, or any concurrent measurements. We tried some of those, you know, we, which we could talk about. But in our own setting, it was it was uh, I found it to be the best to just. Make sure everybody does it. In the background is the individual performance measurement and feedback that we, uh, you know, we did. And the data reported is the result from that you know, um, performance uh, measurement that we did in the background.
1: Can you spend a little bit of time talking about some of the details? You were saying individual performance. How, what were some examples of how you might sure. do that?
2: Um, basically, as far as the performance, uh, what we saw, uh, if you can um, go to figure one, uh, of, the, uh, of the paper, uh, the five components w- were measured. And what we did was over a two year period, and we separate the two years starting from October 2003 to September 2005. We separate into quartiles. So we have uh, a total of eight uh, quartiles. Uh, we started with baseline baseline of the three months. That's just this is what we're doing right now. We have limited you know, knowledge of uh, substance as a department, whatever you do. And already at baseline, we were able to put in a central line, CVP and SVO2, within two hours uh, at about 50% or 51.4%. Uh, toward the implement, uh, at the end of the implementation period, so the last quartile, we reached 83%. So that's 83% of patients uh, uh, receiving a catheter, uh, checking an x-ray, Calibrating for CVP and SVO2, and the nurse putting a CVP SVO2 value in the chart. Then the second component was antibiotic. You know, we kind of bounced up between, you know, 90% and the high 80% consistently. Uh, The third measurement was that at the beginning, at baseline, we were doing about 8%, 8 8.1% completing the entire protocol. The early goal directed
1: therapy, right,
2: yeah. In eight percent, and then toward the implementation period, we reached 53.7 percent. And then the, uh, the fourth component was appropriate story. Appropriateness means that uh, if the patient was on vasopressor, because we didn't have any cosentropin stimulation test result, of course. So if they were on vasopressor and high dose vasopressor, we used the guideline to to suggest that they should be on uh, steroids. So that's appropriate. Now, if they weren't on vasopressor and they didn't get re- uh, steroids, that's also considered appropriate. So we, you know, uh, reach about 70% at the end. Lactate clearance, we were much better. Now that's just basically checking one lactate at the beginning and then checking it again uh, within the 6 to 12-hour period to make sure that the lactate goes down. So if you have a lactate of 3.1 uh, and it went down to 3, that's that's some clearance, so that's counted. Importantly at the all or none, you know, we started out at 0%. That means none of the, comp- all the, comp- some components were done, but it were done, uh, uh, not all of them were done at 0%, and we reach about 51%, completion of everything. Um, now, you might say, well, 51 is kind of not, not that high relative to a lot of other targets reaching 90%, but... Um, Some of the barriers, I think, is, you know, the process change. This is every physician any time are expected to do this. Secondly is the ergotherapy protocol itself. It's pretty an intensive six-hour resuscitation and three or four hours of that could be really at the bedside, placing a patient on fluids, transfusion, multiple vasopressor, mechanical ventilation, uh, and at the same time, I might have 10 other ankle sprain, you know, abdominal pain patients I have to see uh, at the same time. So that's a, a uh, you know a hurdle, and then uh, another minor one is the documentation. If we didn't document a CVP at six hours, uh, either the nurse forgot to, or some other thing is going on. No matter how great we did, just a simple documentation basically uh, show that you didn't do the entire bundle. So when I did you know I, I did the individual chart review, so I I feel that we're at best about eighty percent. Uh, and then, with limitation with the process, it brings it down to another you know, uh, fully documented sixty uh, percent. Uh, I I'm not sure how or if you know we can get to the over ninety percent compliance for the entire uh, bundle. That's that's very 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 um, difficult.
1: Let me ask you a question. Can you share uh, with the listeners some of the specifics of how you were educating both the physicians, the nursing staff? Did you have a monthly meeting or or weekly meetings? Did you meet with people in groups or individually? How did you decide uh, how to do that, and did it change over time?
2: Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, we, uh, as far as education, you know, we started out, um, we have uh, three different arms of education. Uh, Number one, of course, is the didactic. So with our nurses, we have every six months uh, nursing conferences. You know, it's like a two-day conference, 10 hours a day, where they go through different, you know, uh, topics that they want to make sure the nurses are up to date. And sepsis is part of that. So we probably spend about four hours on severe sepsis every six months didactic to the nurses. I myself also give about once or twice a year a sepsis, uh, you know, conference slash lecture to our own physician and resident. So that's the didactic component the bedside is really you need a champion. So from the nursing, we have one nurse educator champion who basically uh, launched the protocol, educated nurses, making sure simple thing is the the, the equipment are uh, always functional, uh, and those are ongoing, you know, every day. Uh, myself also is um, bedside teaching. So I, you know, go through the entire... You know, I spend about at least half an hour on, on a patient just at the bedside teaching the resident you know, what is SERS, what is sepsis, what is severe sepsis, septic shock, you know, what are your criteria to launch the bundle after you put in the line, you know, what are the next steps, so on and so forth. I mean, go through the entire process uh, at the bedside. And just a simple thing as uh, a difference between uh, recognizing a patient has severe sepsis, septic shock, Compared to fever, hypotension, and UTI, that is a huge difference, and that took you know somewhere three to six months just to get that through. Um, let alone doing the whole full-blown you know sepsis bundle.
1: Do Do you want to Those share with us? Do you want to share with us some areas where you had surprising areas of pushback that you didn't expect, or areas that were much more difficult than you thought they would be in this educational process?
2: Sure, sure. I, I think um, the pushback. Uh, I've <laughs> resolved that. There's, in any process change, you're not going to get a hundred percent buy-in. There's always going to be one or two, maybe more, physician and nurses who uh, has been practicing the way they practice for many years and they're not going to change. Uh, so that's an accepted. You know, once you come in and you say yes, that those are the, the the barriers, then you just move on. Um, those. So that that was one. Um, the other one is also um, just disease itself, the disease itself. You know, one physician or nurse may think this is sepsis. Uh, Another one might think it's UTI and a uh, fever with tachycardia. Uh, so the, diagnos- the diagnosis of the disease is a problem. And I don't think, uh, you know, as, as a f- uh, research field or the field of sepsis, I think that's a bottleneck until we have some definitive marker. So the, the diagnostic component is, is uh, an issue, the patient themselves, you know, we as a medical specialty have no uh, accountability for the septic patient, but we have a lot of uh, accountability for the trauma and the chest pain patient. You know, we, I know, if we have a trauma patient and if we didn't activate the trauma team and we didn't do things on time, it's a immediate quality uh, uh, issue because we'll lose our trauma certification. If we didn't get a patient in a cath lab in time, it's a huge quality issue, but if I have an 82-year-old nursing home patient with a severe sepsis in the corner, and for some reason the patient arrests, our in immediate, you know, uh, comment, oh well, you know that patient just had a poor prognosis to start out with. So there's no accountability as a specialty, multi-specialty, for the severe sepsis. Okay. So I think from the big picture, you know, those are the barriers. So if we have big picture problem it's hard to motivate people at the bedside.
1: Let me uh, shift gears for a little bit and try and summarize sort of the second half of the questions I wanted to ask you today. So in in your last couple of tables, Table 4 and, I guess, Figure 2, the first thing you're able to try and show is that the group where the bundle was able to be completed compared with the bundle where they were not completed were about the same in terms of their Apache scores, et cetera, et cetera. And yet... Interestingly, there were two questions I had for you, and and you can sort of take it from there, is you were able to clearly show that the group of patients where the bundle was completed, you were able to reduce mortality from 39.5% down to 20% percent. And yet, as you, uh, I thought, very nicely state in your uh, discussion, and I'm just going to quote you here, the patients with the bundle completed had no difference in fluids, transfusion, vasopressor, or inotrope administration. Compared with patients with the bundle not completed, these results were different from the original early goal-directed therapy study, where more fluids, transfusion, and inotropes were administered with less vasopressor usage in the treatment group. So if you'd like to take a few minutes and, and make some comments on that, that sure. would be great.
2: Yeah, I think... Um... I, I there's a couple of explanations. Number one is the all and none uh, phenomenon. So in the bundle not completed, I mean, they had something. Example is looking at a table as far as the therapies in that just the bundle not completed, um, 65% already had a, a CVP blood pressure, CVP-SU2 monitoring. And as far as time to antibiotic fluids, they have, you know, some goals completed. Uh, example is, you know, already uh, 36% of them had the CVP goals met. 23% had SQ2 met. Lactate clearance in 59%. So even though it's not completed, some components were were completed. So hypothetically, could it be that if nothing was done versus something was done, you may have a, a difference in fluids and transfusion vasopressor? So that we don't know. Number two... I think, is um, implementation. That means that I think from the educational standpoint, uh, even though our physicians think that we're giving much more fluid now than we were before, but I know from the research versus standard care, I don't think our, you know, we as physicians are comfortable giving six liters of fluid in the ED yet as we were doing the study because, you know, I was part of the study myself, so I know exactly what was done in the treatment arm. So we're were are more um, prone to give vasopressor when a patient is hypovolemic or hypotensive rather than trying to push more fluids. So that may result in similar fluids uh, and also similar vasopressor because in the original study, there was less vasopressor used in uh, the, uh, the, uh, the treatment arm because of more fluids, transfusion, inotrope. Uh, however, interestingly, though, the goals are the same. That means that you probably can get your CVP and blood pressure up and met the goals if you give vasopressor versus give fluids. That I don't know; it's a scientific question. And then I think uh, lastly is there may be some, even though the Apache scores and so forth are um, uh, are the same, the lactate and Sv2 is a little bit different between the one that was completed versus not not completed. So therefore, in the one that was completed, had you know, lower lactate and higher SpO two, suggesting that they may be uh, not as sick. Therefore, the fluid in resuscitation may not be. Uh, you know, they don't need that much. I, I don't know. You know, those are the three possible explanations of why we end up to have similar um, treatments, even though the goals you know are definitely more met in the completed arm.
1: Let me, uh, let me conclude by asking you an, an interesting hypothetical question. So you went out, you did this study, you were able to show both, that you could get the bundles implemented and that in the group where it was done, there seemed to be an associated improvement in mortality. Right. So let's say you are given infinite resources... That's a nice thought. And you are picking the next two or three steps for your hospital and your ER to improve that 50% bundle compliance as high as it could go. What would be the kinds of things that you would want to do next to do that?
2: Sure. Yeah, I, and we're, uh, you know, part of this, I think, like you already kind of alluded, is the PDSA model, you know, Plan, Do, Study, Act. And we've gone through that multiple times, and I'm, we're getting to a, a point where we're actually getting more resources to help this. So, in the ideal scenario, I would need to have a full-time nurse educator in each of the unit in the ED, in the ICU, different ICUs, uh, to basically every day troubleshoot the severe sepsis patient. Even the pneumonia, UTI need to be screened. Do they actually have sepsis or not? So, full-time nurse educator, quality person in each unit, a full-time quality administrator you know from quality department to also uh, collect the data analyze report performance so those are the kind of the daily workhorse and then definitely the physicians themselves you know if there's an incentive pay for uh, pay for performance if our hospital has some kind of either discount or or physician nurse uh, bonuses for performance so that would be some kind of financial investment as well to see if we can actually go up to uh, the 100%, and then thirdly, I think is from the quality aspect. If there's some kind of accountability as an institution uh, from the medical society, if uh, if your hospital is at uh, below 80% compliance with severe sepsis, um, you'll put in you know the, the not preferred list. You know, some some, some kind of system like that.
1: And then, of course, if you had infinite uh, resources, you'd hire a 24-7 intensivist assigned to the emergency department. Exactly. Office. And
2: on top of that, yes, there, there has to be a 24, just like the trauma team. If there's a, uh, a severe sepsis patient in the ED, admitted to ICU, and the ED physician can't handle it because they got 10, 20 other patients, a 24-hour intensivist to be on call, present immediately, and implement the 6- and 24-hour bundle from hour zero. And maybe if not even one intensivist, you probably need two because that intensivist is now focused on this, uh, this septic patient. The second, you have to have a backup intensivist.
1: We've been speaking today with Dr. H. Bryant Nguyen. He is an associate professor of emergency medicine at Loma Linda University, and uh, he's been involved in some of these very important landmark sepsis trials, and we've had an opportunity to speak with him today about one of his important articles recently published in Critical Care Medicine, focusing on the critical issue of implementation of sepsis bundle and perhaps the most one of, the, one of the most difficult aspects of implementation in critical care, which is changing culture, and my, I tip my hat to you. This is an important study, and I'm really glad you've spent some time with us today to talk about it.
2: Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Saber. It was my pleasure.
1: This concludes our podcast for Friday, June first, two 2007. Look for future podcasts featuring a wide variety of information important to critical care practitioners, including interviews with authors and discussions with prominent members of the critical care community. If you have comments, questions, or ideas for future podcasts, please call the Society of Critical Care Medicine's audio feedback line at 1-847-493-6498 to share your thoughts. Critical Care Medicine is the official journal of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, offering the latest information about critical care to healthcare professionals. Members of the Society of Critical Care Medicine receive a free subscription as well as other benefits. For more information, visit www.sccm.org. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Richard Savell. As a general study rule, practitioners
0: should start preparing intensively for their board exams at least one year in advance. Register today for the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Adult and Pediatric Multiprofessional Critical Care Review Courses to be held August 7th through 11th, 2007 in Chicago, Illinois, USA. As a registered participant of a review course, you'll receive a free study aid worth $175. In addition, you can enhance your board review by registering for one of two pre-courses, the ABIM Critical Care Self-Evaluation, Process Module Review, or the Rapid Response System Training. Build a solid foundation and further your study efforts with the only multi-professional association that focuses solely on critical care. Register today by visiting www.sccm.org or calling one 847 827